So my guest here today is author Terry Tucker. Care to introduce yourself a little bit better than I did? Sorry. No, hey, that's pretty good. You know, it's a lot of, a lot better than some people do. Yeah, I'm Terry Tucker. I, I am the oldest of three boys. I won't go back to birth, but I grew up in, on the south side of Chicago. You can't tell this from looking at me or from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall and actually played college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. Graduated from college, was the first person in my family to actually graduate from college, moved home to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree and look back now and realize that I didn't know a thing about business just because I had a degree. Fortunately, found that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain in their marketing department. Unfortunately, lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my father and my grandmother who were both dying of different forms of cancer. And then professionally, as I said, started out with Wendy's, then moved to hospital administration, then made a huge pivot in my life and became a police officer. And part of that, I worked undercover narcotics. I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. After that, I started my own school security consulting business, coached girls high school basketball, uh, started, uh, became an author in 2020, but for the last 10 years have been dealing with this rare form of cancer. And then finally, my wife and I have been married for almost 30 years. We have one child, a daughter is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is a officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. You are definitely in the running for the world's most interesting man competition. <laughs> I, uh... I am the world's most interesting man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, hats off to you. Wow, that is a lot. Um, so what position did you play at Citadel? Uh, I was a forward, uh, except when the center got in foul trouble. And then I, you know, you'd have to go up against the six foot 10 guys and stuff like that, the Clemson had and things like that. So it was uh, made for an interesting time. Yes. I'm i uh, I'm coming at you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. So sec, uh, sports are just every day for me. That's, that's about all I'm going to touch on that. I'm, uh, finishing a degree. I have a degree in business administration, but I, I don't think it's worth it. I, I'm so I'm figuring out the the long path of life. Um, what was interesting was uh, you said when you were diagnosed with the rare form of cancer that uh, you have two choices: you can be a miserable, whatever you want to call yourself, or you can keep going. And uh, I mean, you said it even hit points where you were really wanting to die when you were going through that. Is that a uh, I definitely I can relate to that. I've uh, I've never had cancer. Thank God. Um, I'm young. It, it may come down the pike. You definitely probably didn't see that coming, you know, in your younger years, for sure. But uh, that's that's more of what I'd like to talk about right now to start is just positive attitude. And like because your book, uh, it's called Sustainable Excellence, the 10 principles to leading your uncommon and extraordinary life is it? Uh, I imagine you touch on some of that and some ways to like cope with the negativity that we put ourselves through. I, I do. I, you know, it's, I came up with these 10 principles and each chapter is a principle. And it's always fun for me as an author that when somebody reads the book, they always reach out and they'll say, you know, and, and, the, and the principles are not in any order. Number one is not any more important than number seven or anything like that. But there's always one principle that resonates with the reader, which is a great starting point 
to talk about the book and, and the impact that it had on them. But even for me, when, when I wrote the principles, the one that, that stood out for me, and, and you kind of touched on a little bit, is this one. It's most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. I, you know, I, I'm not the exception. I am absolutely the rule in that case where I have done that in my life. Oh, I'd like to do that, but a mm, little scary. What do people say if I fail? Am I smart enough? Do I have enough intelligence? That kind of thing to do that kind of stuff. That's thinking with your fears and your insecurities. That's not thinking with, yeah, let's try this and see what happens. And, and I always tell, especially young people, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Yeah, that, that doesn't include bridge jumping or anything stupid like or drink as much as you possibly can in one night. That's that's not what that applies to. Because If that's in your heart and soul, then <laughs> you, you might need to recalibrate that a little bit. So. Yeah, really scared to hit on this, uh, my boss's wife right now. Yeah, yeah, probably not a good probably idea. Probably not. It would be a career-limiting decision there. Yes. Definitely. I. Uh, so, I mean, like, when I think about when I read something, just when I hear something like the 10 principles, it kind of reminds me, and you kind of give me like Tony Robbins vibes a little bit, or uh, what's his face, Dan Millman, you know, because he's got the life you're born to live. Did you ever come across any other uh, authors who do things like that? I mean, there's all kinds of, of interesting people out there. I, I read a book last year that I, to this day still has a, a, a profound impact. I mean, I'm, sports has always been a big part of my family. As I said, I went to college at the Citadel. I, I have a brother who's six foot seven who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame. Another oh, brother who was six with six, who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers and the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six five. So I sort of joked that, you know, if you sat behind our family in church growing up, not a prayer's chance you're going to see anything, you know, that was going on. So athletics was a huge thing. But this book is called Legacy. And I'd certainly recommend it to you or, or certainly any members of your audience. And it's about pretty much the, the undisputed best sports team of any country of any sport of all times. And you probably have no idea who that is because I certainly didn't when I started the book. You want to take a guess? Uh, it's probably something soccer related, but I, I don't know. It's close. It's rugby related. And wow. it's it's the New Zealand national rugby team. They're called the All Blacks. Oh. And they're, they're called that because their uniforms are all black. It's, it's not real novel or anything like that. And so... The, the interesting thing about this book, this author was embedded with them for a while. And, and some of the things that we think of as great sports teams and the things that they have kind of floored me when I listen to it. So if the, when they're looking to bring on a new player, and, and I don't know anything about rugby, so I'm not even going to try to embarrass myself in that regard. But when they bring somebody on, they look for two things, in addition to being a good rugby player. One, character. What kind of person are you? How do you react when you lose? Do you use losing as a mechanism to learn or are you going home and kicking the dog and beating the wife kind of thing? And number two, uh, humility. And I think back on my, I'm, for people who can't see us, I'm much older than you are, but I think about all the resumes and all the interviews I had in my life where I felt like, well, I better have all the answers to all these questions or otherwise I'm not gonna get this job. And the way they position it is, you individually 
probably aren't going to have the answers. But us collectively, us as a team, will figure out the answers. So, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways of talking about, you know, people that are great or, or having a great life and things like that. But I always go back to, you know, when I always talk about goals, you know, everybody's got goals. And, you know, I got New Year's resolutions. I got goals. I got all this stuff. Why do all those fail? And I really think it's because people don't understand or don't even know what their values are. You know, what are you willing, in all honesty, what are you willing to die for? What, what's that important to you that you're willing to take a stand on something? And when you find out those things, then you can start attaching goals to those things because you've got some kind of a foundation on which to put those goals underneath. So I, I don't know, it's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but... No, and I love that you tied it back to athletics because, I mean, I'm a music guy for sure, but I've always played sports for fun. And I know people who are dedicated athletes, like they'll shoot free throws until they make 53 pointers in a row. And if they miss, they start over. They're always running drills, but then like their personal life can be a total wreck. And they don't apply the same foundations that they do to the sport to their lives. And I was, I still am that way with music is I'll sit there, I'll practice with a metronome, I'll put in the time, get my 10,000 hours, but then I'll not even make those connections in real life. And I have to be like reminded sometimes. So it's easy to compartmentalize those things. And I think when it comes to goals, like you're right, at some point you got to realize it takes longer than you think. Like, yeah, all goals, what was it the smart method where it's like attainable, uh, something time-based. Right. And so like, we all want to be like, oh yeah, New Year's resolution by this time, I'll lose this much weight. But uh, do you ever read the book Atomic Habits? I have not yet. It's on my list. But oh, yes. it's, it's two thumbs up on that one. Okay. Um, but it, it just talks about how like, no, it's to get these goals. It's about changing your lifestyle rather than like just using all this thing to focus on one goal. Because then when you have it, you didn't do the lifestyle adaptation to keep it. And I think in your situation, it must have been way harder because it was forced, you know, like you didn't have a choice. And so, like you said, you worked with narcotics, like narcotics division with the police. And uh, I mean, I've struggled with substances. I know plenty of people who have struggled with substances. And uh, I, I just know that a lot of the things with 12 step programs and the things that you work through are about like being completely honest with yourself, coming in with humility, like the same things you just talked about. but not we still have a choice you know what i mean like yeah we they use the disease method for addiction but at the end of the day i i I might be wrong but i personally feel that it is a choice to use at the end of the day at at a certain point as opposed to like yeah i don't like going to my aa meetings or oh yeah i don't like talking to my sponsor well do cancer patients like chemo like is is that that you didn't have a choice like it was it it was death either way (laughs) like we don't Addicts, I don't think it resonates the same. It, it, it doesn't. And, and it's interesting you say that. I did a podcast with two cadets at the Air Force Academy a couple of years ago. And, and one of them asked me, are there, are there programs? Are there things in place for people who have substance abuse issues? And, and what I told them was, yes, there, there are all kinds of different programs for those individuals. But what I found from, you know, again, I've never had a substance abuse problem, but being in that line of work where I, you're, you're arresting, you're, you're taking down dealers, you're doing all that kind of stuff. What I told them was there's a very fine line between 
rock bottom. And I think until you hit rock bottom, until you get to that disgusting place where you're selling your body for your drug and, and you're breaking into homes and you're doing all the, the horrible things that people have to do just to survive, that those programs, at least in my mind, at least I didn't see them work until people got to that point, until they were just so fed up that they had hit rock bottom. But what I told them is there's a very fine line between rock bottom and dead. And, and that's that's the scary thing. You know, you you look at you have to get that low before those programs really resonate with you and are like, yeah, I've got to get clean. I've got to straighten out. I've got to do that kind of thing. But I'm just going to get one more fix. Well, that one more fix. I'll never forget my very first run as a police officer. I started out as a reserve police officer in Santa Barbara, California. And it was the first night I was out with my with my coach, with my training officer. And we got to run to a Burger King. And there was a guy who was on the toilet with the needle in his arm dead. And we found out that he had been in prison or he had been in jail for 18 months. He had had X, X habit. And then he got out and thought, well, that's the habit I had before I went in. I'm going to go get that much drug and I'm going to put that in my system. And it killed him because he had had 18 months to detox and get that out of his system. He went back to where he thought he was and he died. So it's a it's a horrible, it's a lousy way to live. It's a lousy way to be a police officer. It's it's a it's a horrible thing to have to see people do the things they do to do that. And the thing you've got to remember when you're a cop in that regard is that these are still people. You know, somebody somewhere, somebody loves that individual. And you you do the best you can, you try to get them help. But like I said, I can't tell you the number of people that I offered help to that were like, the next time I saw them, they were back using again. And it was like, they, they hadn't hit rock bottom yet. Yeah, the coming to terms with this is somebody's daughter sometimes is, uh, it's hard because of your training and also what you personally feel like. Yeah, as a cop, the moral, uh, I couldn't imagine the moral conflict you'd have just every single day. Um, before I actually respond, is there a state you haven't been to? It seems like you've been everywhere. <laughs> I have been everywhere in, in, a, in a lot of ways. I, I've lived on the East Coast. I've lived on the West Coast. I, I've lived in the Gulf Coast. I was born in the Midwest. I went to school in the South. So I, I, we're, I live in Colorado now. So there, there, there are quite a few states that I haven't been into. But, but I, I love, you know, I, my wife and I always say that all that moving caused us to declutter. You know, it's like we're not keeping all this crap. We haven't lived in the same place for, you know, 40 years and we, we have all this stuff. We just, we're moving. Okay, we got to get rid of all this stuff. And our daughter just got married and, and, and moved. And we told her, it's like, okay, all this stuff here that's yours, if you want it, take it with you. Otherwise, it's it's out of here. And, and that, so yes, I, I've lived all over the place and have loved every minute of it. Yeah, I, I'm in a similar boat. I, I grew up in like an hour south of Tampa Bay, Florida. But after I left, and even then, I still moved around a lot. I have family in Chicago. I have family all over the U.S. I lived in California for a little bit. I, uh, God, but Knoxville was like me saying, "Okay, I'm gonna slow down. I'm gonna like really work on myself and get like stability." And uh, I mean, it's every day. It takes a lot of work. And I think like what you said about you have to hit rock bottom. Part of rock bottom is your own honesty with yourself. Like, what do you want rock bottom to be? Because for me, rock bottom was going out drinking with a bunch of my friends and just a social situation came up that it hit me that if I was sober, that never would have happened. I never would have let it happen. 
And that's when I decided to be like, okay, no, no more of this. I'm going to get clean. But I mean, I did a year federal probation before that. That wasn't rock bottom for me. I, I, off my record, by the way, I, I actually just worked a job with the federal government uh, this past year. I just finished that contract. So no, I can still run for president. It's on the list. There you go. Yeah, no, but you know, I, I let so many things happen and slide because I let my lifestyle be that way. And this was normal to me. And no, I've never been arrested. I've never had a DUI. So it's just like, I can keep letting it slide until I said, you know what? I've had enough. And so I, there is an amount of personal honesty that you run from when you're using. And I, I bet that's like, I mean, I'm sure you've not to make light of it, but I mean, I bet you've arrested people where it's like fourth time this week, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, here you go again, you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. It, it's, you know, there's the 80 20 rule in business, you know, where 80% of your business comes from 20% of your customers. That, right. that same thing holds in law enforcement. 80% of the crime is committed by 20% of the knuckleheads. And you you get to know who those knuckleheads are and you get to know who their, their baby mama is and you know where their family lives and you know what you and, and that's part of being a good, you know, beat officer, you know, running an area in a marked car in a uniform and detectives come to you. Who's this guy? What you know, this is his description. Who do you think this is? Oh, that's so and so. That's peanut, or that's what whatever. This is where he lives, and this is where his baby mama lives, and this is where his family. And 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 if you're a good beat officer, you know that stuff. You know who the bad guys are because it's not the 80% of the people that live in that area. They're law-abiding, good, decent, caring, loving individuals. It's the 20% of the knuckleheads that you see every single night. So where did you transfer into hostage negotiation? Because that's that's very interesting to me. So I, I started out, as I said, as a reserve police officer in Santa Barbara, California. We then moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. And I, I told my wife, I'm, look, I want to do this full time. And so I started, went through the police academy in Cincinnati, started out in a marked car in uniform, answering radio runs, did that for about four years, then went into the drug unit then went into the SWAT team and, and became a hostage negotiator. So, so what was that? Was there like a training for SWAT or was it just a compilation of all the skills uh, for, for hostage negotiation? Yeah. Hostage negotiation is, is sort of an on the job kind of thing. I, I, we did train with uh, the, the local FBI the, had a hostage negotiation team. So we trained with them. We've trained with LAPD. Again, this was years ago. Uh, we had a psychologist that worked with us and our training was basically scenario based. We would set up a scenario. Sometimes we would act as the bad guy. Sometimes we'd act as a hostage. I, and, and I'll never forget the first time I, I was the actual negotiator. And it was a simple scenario. There was a hostage who, behind the door, had a, host, uh, a hostage taker who had taken a hostage behind the door. And I was negotiating with that person. And the entire time the hostage is, you know, Help me, help me. And and I spent the entire time dealing with the hostage and almost totally neglected the hostage taker. And, and that was a, my first big kick in the face of, uh, hey, dummy, you, this is not how things are going. You, you really have to downplay the hostage and spend a whole lot more time uh, doing what we used to call open asking open-ended questions, having that person burn off a lot of their emotional energy. If you think about We've all been to the park as kids, you know, played on a teeter-totter or a swing set. If you think about that analogy, when we start negotiating with the person, their emotional side, their emotional brain way up in the air, their rational brain way down on the ground. Over time, by asking open-ended questions and getting them to talk and burn off a lot of that emotional energy, 
that teeter-totter sort of comes to equilibrium. And then over more time, you get to a point where their rational brain is up in the air and their emotional brain is down on the ground. And we make better decisions, as you and I both know, when we're using our rational brain as opposed to our emotional brain. And so that's the time you talk to people about letting the hostage go or putting the gun down and coming out and stuff like that. Sometimes it's that's hours into it, two, three, four hours. You're talking about something over here when the real problem is over here and you haven't even gotten to it. Because like any relationship, and whether it's you know parent, child, husband, wife, boss, subordinate, you're developing trust with that individual. And until they trust you, they're not going to start talking about why you're really there. Man, that's deep. Have you ever used the skills in real life? Because so like not to keep throwing out other books, but there's a book about this. I think it's called Never Split the Difference. Uh, Chris Voss. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a very interesting read. But uh, I remember the first time I read it, I tried it out at Subway. I noticed that uh, they had a a whiteboard where they marked all the cookies they had to throw away that day, and I got them talking about something, and then just eased the cookies in there and walked away with a free cookie. And I'm like, so it does work. Uh, have you tried? Have you stolen any cookies? Have you talked your way in and out of things? I, I have not stolen any cookies. <laughs> yes, it does work. I, you, if you think about. If you just think about it in your own life, if, if I if I said to you something like, well, why did you do that, Morgan? That sounds accusatory. That's not, even if it's meant in a very you know passive, non-aggressive way, that sounds accusatory. So using what and how questions to get to where you want to go, are they're much softer. They're much easier. And that's what we used to do as negotiators. Well, why? Why are we here today? It's not something you want to say to somebody, but what's going on today? And, and by using what and how questions, we're, it's my job to get you out safely, but using what and how questions is getting you to help me figure out how you're going to get out. So it's basically sort of turning the tables on the person and getting them to start brainstorming now with me about how you're going to come out. They, and they don't even realize that, that, that by asking these questions and asking them in a certain way, it, it is a lot of the stuff that Voss talked about in the book was stuff that we learned, <clears throat> excuse me, and stuff that we actually employed when we were negotiating with people. But then you've got people, I'll, I'll never forget, we were, we had a 15 year old kid that was barricaded in a house and we had done everything that we normally would do to get per, the person out and it wasn't working. And so we we told them and said, hey, we'll call you back. And we hung up and we kind of huddled and we were like, I don't know, what, what, what do you guys think? And we talked for a while. And one of the older guys was like, wait a minute, the kid's 15 years old. Let's let's be a parent. Let's scare him. Let, let, and so we, we decided to break a window and throw in a, a flashbang device that basically sort of goes off like a grenade, but it doesn't explode. It doesn't throw shrapnel, but it produces a very bright light and a very loud noise. And so we had the tactical team do that. And within 10 minutes, the kid was out. So sometimes you got to be a parent. Sometimes you've got to sort of be unconventional and do things like that and, 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 you know, throw out the book and try something new. Working, I mean, you bring up rational thinking and, you know, anybody who's already on the other side of it with hostages is already so far removed from that. And so like, these people have got to be really difficult. I mean, as far as, I mean, I'm sure you might have some easier ones, maybe like a 15 year old, but I'd imagine some of these people really probably put you through it. Like it may have taken hours. It may have taken, I mean, 
So what's it like when you know that the person may already be mentally off and may like already be thinking like maybe they're on to you like, oh, yeah, see, he's trying to manipulate me. So now I'm going to, you know, like working against somebody who's already got their own defense mechanisms against you is oh, what was that like? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I, I mean, there are people that are that are mentally ill, and, and you're, you're you're trying to do something rational. And it's like, well, they're not rational. That's that's not going to work. You still try to build trust, and and the reason negotiating negotiating was so exhausting was because a lot of times you, you would throw something out at me, and I might you know you might be just hair on fire, pissed as hell, and I would take that and I would label it so. But I had to label it correctly. In other words, so I would come back at you and say, gee, Morgan, you sound like you're just livid. Now, if I did that now, okay, I just labeled your feeling. Right. But if I missed that, if I said, gee, Morgan, you seem like you're a little upset, man, I totally blew that. Oh, yeah. You know, then I hit you with the, no, I'm not. Right. Well, no, it would be, it would usually be something much more strenuous, like, you know, no, you idiot. And then, you know, a few expletives and four letter words and things like that. Yep. They, 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 no, you totally don't understand what I'm, and so that's why you sort of had to get down in the mud. You had to get down in the weeds with these people and, and, and develop that and label that. And, and, and it was exhausting because you're right. Sometimes it would take four five, six, seven hours. And if you think about it, I mean, think about if I asked you to come in to a situation you knew nothing about, that you had nothing to do with, that very well may have been festering for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and here you are, and you're going to fix it, or you're going to solve it at least for tonight. That's a heck of a big ask for any human being. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how much how many resources you have. That's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And about 80%, maybe 90%, we were pretty good in Cincinnati, of the time we got the person out successfully, we got them out safely. But about 10% of the time, and, and keep in mind, some I mean, we were used to, somebody got a tip that a homicide suspect was holed up in an apartment and we would surround the building and try to talk them out. So it was all different kinds of people. It wasn't just somebody who took a hostage. It could be a barricaded subject. It could be all that kind of thing. And sometimes people were like, no, no, I'm not going back to jail. And they would choose to end their life. But again, it was their choice. I knew I did everything I possibly could to get them out safely. But at the end of the day, it's still their choice how this thing ends, whether it's suicide by cop or they take their own life or they want to surrender or whatever it ends up being. And I never lost any sleep over that. And I don't mean to sound callous in that way. But like I said, I did the very best I could to get them out. It was their choice on how this was going to end. No, God bless you. I mean, they created the situation in the first place. And I guess that's a good time to ask you this. It's kind of an abstract question, but uh, going through what you've personally gone through and then saying that you've seen people take their own lives over these things because it, they took it too far and just full panic mode. What What do you think the value of life is overall, like just in general? I know, super abstract question. <laughs> no, I, I am, I, I am a hundred percent. Life is the most precious thing that we have, and 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 with that, I think is coupled, and 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 guys don't usually talk about this word a lot is love. 
And, and I'm, I'm not just talking about romantic love, you know, I mean, loving what you do, loving yourself, loving the people in your life and things like that. And, and, and those two things are just so, I mean, we're, we're here for such a, a small amount of time and we're given all this. I mean, if you look around, I, I mean, I live in Colorado, I live in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. I, I can look out my back window and it's, it's, it's beautiful. I've lived on the East Coast and the West Coast. I've lived by the, I've lived in some amazing places. I've dealt with some amazing human beings. I feel, even though I'm dealing with cancer and, and it's probably going to kill me, I feel pretty lucky to be where I am. So I think life is an incredibly precious thing and that we should cultivate it. We should support it. We should nurture it the very best we can. And then again, you you do the best you can, and then you let another human being go. And it's like, you've got to figure your life out now. You've got to figure out what you're supposed to do with that life. And hopefully at the end of the day, when it's your turn in the barrel that it's time for me to go, you'll be proud of the things you did. I, I mean, we're, we're, not, we're human beings. We're fallible. We make mistakes. We do dumb things. But at the end of the day, I hope most people are happy with their lives. Every day... I wake up. I obviously I say, especially when people ask me, how am I doing? I always just say, well, I'm here for a reason, I guess. Like I woke up today, so he must need me for something. There, there must be some thing I'm here to do today. And that's what I look for. I do. Um, and, and so do I. I mean, I always wake up in the morning and if I don't see candles and flowers, I get out of bed. So, you know, right. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't have any answer to what the value of life is. I, I, the question was just posed to me recently and I've never thought about it before. I've, I've definitely thrown out the old, if it was your last day on earth, what would you do? Which is a much easier one to ask, but. I, I've I'm, seen too many people die. I, I certainly as a police officer and, and, and as, uh, as a cancer patient, I, I've seen too many people die. And, and I just believe the more people I see die, how precious life really is. And so many people use it and, and do great things with it. And some people just never get it. Some people live a casual life. And I think as a result, their goals, their dreams, their ambitions kind of become a casualty of that sort of unplanned living. Yeah. I mean, I was going to bring up living life on life's terms that no matter what we plan, what we goal, there's still an amount of life has another thing in store for us. I'm sure when I'm sure 10 years ago, you probably didn't see yourself like where you are now. 20 years ago, I bet you didn't see yourself as an author. You know what I mean? Was that? Right. Yeah. So th that was you kind of accepting life on life's terms there. Right. Um, but yeah. How do you kind of get out of your own way, you know, with things like that? That's, that's a great question. And, and, and you're absolutely right. I think people get in their way. They get in their head. They're, they're, when when I was growing up, there was a basketball coach at Indiana University by the name of Bobby Knight. You may or may not have heard of him. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, as I said, I, I grew up in Chicago, played basketball in Chicago and had a, a guy that I played in the same conference with, the guy by the name of Isaiah Thomas, who went to Indiana. Uh, like the Isaiah Thomas? Pardon? The Isaiah Thomas? The Isaiah Thomas, yeah. You wow. know, won a national championship with Knight, went on to the Pistons and won a couple NBA championships coach the Knicks for a while and things like that. But I used to see him in the summer when he would come back to Chicago and we would compare notes and things like that. And, and I asked him, said, you know, what well, this is Bobby Knight. The, the guy was sort of the, the Mike Krzyzewski of his time. You know, he was the winningest coach in college right. basketball. And he said, Knight had a saying that went, 
mental is to physical as four is to one. So here's this great coach teaching elite athletes to use their bodies to be great basketball players. But what he was really saying with that quote is that your mind or your mindset is four times more important than anything your physical body is ever going to do. But we all, we all, you know, we want to look good. We want to, you know, I want to be, you know, great nutrition and I want to exercise and I want to do all this kind of stuff. But what we don't spend as much time on is our mind and our mindset and how we we look at things and perceive things. And I think that's a we do ourselves a disservice when we don't spend more time on our brains and our mindset than we do on our bodies. I mean, the ego manifests itself in all kinds of very effed up ways. I uh, I find myself keeping that in check because the further I get in self-improvement, the further I get down the spiritual path the more ways it gets stronger and takes different shapes. And I really wish somebody when I was a kid warned me that you're going to have to deal with the ego. You're going to have to deal with society being pro addiction and pro debt and everything else. Like it's, you're not set up in a winning game here. And right. uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you, you're bombarded with commercials with this is, this is what you need to be happy. If you have this, you will be fulfilled in life. And I, I found that the things that I'm told make me fulfilled don't really make me fulfilled too much. I didn't even know I was in the void. Now I just <laughs> got out of the void and I'm like, okay, so there's a void now or hole in the soul as some people like to call it. And it just keeps sure. stepping out and stepping out. So yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's a fun journey. This life thing, at least, yes, it uh, is. yeah, at least you're giving me hopes that like your, your situation is never permanent. It's not You're in Colorado not. right now. I mean, Santa Barbara to Cincinnati, though, that's such a big change. Cincinnati well, is, uh, I mean, it's it's Ohio. It's a very different environment for sure. It is. And my wife and I are both from the Midwest. I grew up in Chicago. She grew up in Minnesota. And and we were we were out there by ourselves. And and our daughter was born and we had no no support system. And so being in the Midwest, back where our families were just seemed to make sense for us. And, and that's that's why we moved. I love Santa Barbara. It was an amazing community. It, it is probably the most beautiful place I've ever lived in my life. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can't say, and our, our daughter was stationed in the Air Force out of Vandenberg, which is in Santa Maria, which is a little north of that. And we went out for Thanksgiving a couple of years ago and went to Santa Barbara. And it, it, it's just, I, I loved it. I mean, it never gets hot. It never gets cold. It only rains a couple of times a year. It, it's it's an amazing place. Of course. So besides your book, what else are you, uh, what else are you up to these days? What else are you, uh, I, you, I know you do motivational speaking at times. I do, you know, I made the, the brilliant business decision to start a motivational speaking business, right. As COVID hit. So nice. that, that was a, how do you morph that into something that you, you can continue to grow with? And it ended up being podcasts. And I remember the first time somebody reached out to me and said, would you be a guest on my podcast? And my response was, what's a podcast? Right. I had absolutely no idea what this person was talking about. And I remember the first one I did was I had notes all around my camera because I was like, I'm gonna have, what if I stutter and things like that? And, and, and now I've been a guest on probably more than 500 podcasts all over the world. Everybody's it's got one. Everybody's got one. And but I've never, I've yet to have a bad experience. I've I've met some incredibly great people from all over the world. And, and so you, you know, you get to a point where, you know, can you use this? Can you can you get your message out in that regard? So 
things are starting to open up now. I, I, I just did a, a, a talk back in June, the, the South Carolina Bankers Association had their annual convention in Colorado Springs, which I thought was kind of funny. I'm like, really, South Carolina, you got like a million resorts and you can't find a place to go. You got to fly three quarters of the way across the country. It was great. I loved it. I'm, I was so happy they came. They were. It was just good for me to be around people again, because I, with my treatments and stuff like that, and with COVID, having tumors in my lungs, it's probably not a good idea if I get COVID. So I've really kind of isolated myself. And I, and I think that's another thing. Disease of any kind, whether it, you know we talked about addiction, whether it's cancer, whether it's something else, I think tends to isolate you. It, it starts out from your friends, and then I think to your family, and then even to yourself. And you, you get to a point where you, you're you're struggling, and it sounds like you you've done that in, in your life, where you're trying to figure out which, where am I, and who am I, and do do I have to or do I get to, and and which which handle am I grabbing, and and things like that. So so I'm, I'm I've I've started a new a membership program uh, around my book, literally just started. I mean it's it's days old and things like that. So we'll see we'll see where that goes. Trying to do more speaking, but right now my health is is something that's taken up a major part of my time. Where can people find the uh, the membership in your book? Is uh, on your website or? Yeah, the, the book is on the, the website. Uh, the book can also be gotten anywhere you can get a book online, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks, where, wherever you can get a book online. But you can also order it through Amazon on my website. And the membership is also on my website as well. And what's your website called? Sustainable Excellence Membership. Real creative on my part, right? You know? SustainableExcellenceMembership.com. Right. No, that's it's nice and simple. We know what we're looking for. Exactly. It goes with the title of the book. So Yeah, so many people put numbers or weird spellings. No, it's, it's yeah. right there. Um, exactly. For sure. And I guess before I wrap it up with you here, what what was your defining moment when you decided to not be miserable anymore? What was like the weight coming off your shoulders? How did you do that? I, I think, you know, when I got diagnosed with cancer, I, I went through all the emotions that I think we would associate with grief. You know, first it was denial. I can't possibly have cancer. Then you get mad, you get upset. Then you start to bargain with God. Our, our daughter was in high school when I was diagnosed. It was, you know, please let me live long enough to see her graduate. Then you kind of get down. And then you get to a point where, at least I did, where it was like, this sucks, but I'm going to have to embrace this suck. Uh, these are the cards I've been dealt. I do not like these cards. They are horrible cards, but I'm going to have to play them to the best of my ability. And I made a decision very early on that I was never going to take out my misfortune or bad luck or whatever you want to call it on a doctor or a nurse or a therapist or somebody that was trying to help me. And I've seen a lot of people do that. They're they're so scared. They're so angry that they project that onto people that are trying to help them, even their own family, you know, and things like that. And, and, and I made a decision early on, I'm not going to do that. These people are here to help me. I, I, I'm going to embrace them. I'm going to ask, talk to them and find out about their lives and engage. And, you know, I have bad days. You're looking at me. There's no S on my chest. I don't wear a cape and fly around with, with magical powers or anything like that. I have bad days. And, and when I have those bad days, I, I think back, I had a nurse ask me recently, what was it like to have, because I had my foot amputated in 2018, and then I had my leg amputated in 2020. So what was it like to have that? 
And I, and I told her, I said, it hasn't been easy. I'm still learning how to walk again. You know, when you're six foot eight, falling's not an option. You kind of get hurt from this distance. But what I told her was, is that cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind. It can't touch my heart and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are, Morgan. That's who everybody's listening to us is. And again, remember that. Remember that, you know, when you're going for chemotherapy and you lose your hair, your, your hair's not who you are. It's your heart, your mind, and your soul. Remember that. And I think if you do that, it tends to put life in a different perspective. That I needed to hear that today. And I hope the rest of my audience did too. Really, thank you so much for your time. Uh, sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Five stars on Amazon, by the way. So undisputed by all 49 people who rated it. Five stars. It's a five-star book. I'm definitely ordering a copy because I mean, I bet your story is great. It, 126 pages, even for people who don't read, that's, that's not, that's 10 pages of principle. Plus yeah. it's a six page, probably just introduction. Yeah. I'm not that smart. I need to keep the book small. So, you know, it's, it's an easy read. It's a quick read. So awesome. Well, I'll let you get to the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you. You take care. You too. Bye.